Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And Lord, we just pray right now that you would release an impartation um, that I think is on this house for, for writing, for revelation, for sharing, for preaching, for telling stories, for testimonies, for supernatural encounters. Uh, we, just, we pray for that right now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I, I want to I talk to you about the purpose of writing. Before I do that, I want to tell you just a little bit about my story, and, um, and maybe it will be encouraging to you, for those of you that, that are, are new writers, brand new writers. Um, I wrote uh, The Supernatural Ways of Royalty. I wrote about half of that book over a period of a, a year. This is many years ago, probably, I think it was probably 10 years ago. And I worked on it over a period of a year. And I sent, I have a friend who was a, a publisher. She published actually curriculum. It, she didn't publish books, but I, I didn't know anyone else who was actually in the publishing business. And I thought, I'll send it to her, and not, not for her to publish the book, but just for her to give me feedback. And so I, I sent her the manuscript, as I said, was, which was about maybe uh, a third to half done. And um, I, I knew it needed editing, of course, and, and that sort of thing. And I, I sent her the, so she, she got it, and I waited about three weeks and with no response. And so you know how that is, kind of like when you, when you write, it's kind of, it's not just, it's like your baby, right? Like, I'm really nervous to, to, I was really nervous to show anybody what I was doing, especially since I had never done it before, and I, I, you know, and I can't spell, and I barely passed high school, and so, you know, I spell so bad that spell check's like, say what? <laughs> Seriously, I can I, to this day, I've been writing for, I don't know what, more than 10 years, I've written 10, published 10 books, I, I still can't spell. In fact, I didn't understand how word uh, spell check works, so in the beginning, it says, do you want to add this to your dictionary? And I'm like, well, of course I do. <laughs> 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 so my dictionary, my, my, God, seriously, it's true. I'm like, yes, of course I do. That, and now my, <laughs> what's so funny is that, you know, you know, you check, it says, it, you know, spell, spell check. So you check the word and then it underlies and it says, it's still misspelled. And I'm like, you're the one that told me it was right. And I think words, I think spell check's kind of stupid anyway. It's, comes up and it says, which one of these five words are you trying to spell? What the heck if I knew? <laughs> I wouldn't be asking you. I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, so I, so I write this, this, you know, this uh, few chapters and I send it to my friend and, and I don't hear back from her for a while. So I write her and I said, did you get my, my manuscript? And, you know, I'm just kind of wondering what you thought. And and about a week later, I get a response from her, and she, I'm just putting it in my words, what I read. I'm sure she probably meant it differently, but what I heard the, it say is, you know, you have some uh, really good revelation, but you basically can't write. And I was so devastated by her response. And, um, and by the way, I, I would love to have that email again and, write, and read it from, from, you know, my perspective now, but... But from not having any confidence and from being nervous about sending her the manuscript, it definitely was not encouraging. And I got so discouraged. First of all, I, I cried for months. I literally cried at night. I mean, I actually thought, this is amazing. I thought my writing was amazing. 
I, I mean, I look back now and I'm like, I don't know how I got that idea, but I thought it was amazing. I really, I really thought it was amazing. And then I showed it to my wife and she's like, yeah, you're amazing, but you know, that's like showing it to your mother, right? I mean, you could be a drug addict and your mother's like, he's studying, studying to be a pharmacist, you know? So I showed it to my wife, and she's like, yeah, it's really good. So I got this letter back, this email back, and, and it, was, you know, it, was pretty, it was pretty tough. I'm sure she was trying to give me some direction, but I didn't take it that way at all. And I, I just cried on and off for months. I didn't write another word for a year, not one word for a year. And then I was, um, the, the next year, we, were, we had school ministry, and we had a retreat for our school ministry, and there was probably at that time like 300, 250, 300 students, and and, um, and, and, and on this retreat, one of my students, we were talking, and she, you know, I said, what do you do? Uh, what do you do for a living? She said, well, I'm, you know, I'm a, I have a um, master's degree in literature, and you know, I graduated from this college, from this university. And I said, oh, well, I started writing a book, and I kind of told her my story. And she said, oh, I'd love to read your book. And I said, oh, you would? And she said, yeah, I'd love to read your book. And um, so I said, okay, well, I have it on my computer, so... I went in my cabin and got my computer, and she, about three hours later, came out of her cabin with my computer, and she said, this is really a great book. I, I, don't, I don't know who told you this isn't a good book. And um, I said, well, I, I told her what happened, and she said, I, she's crazy. This is a great book, and I, I'd like to help you um, get this book published. And so, um, I'm sorry, I forgot her name. Allison. Allison. No, Ellison Armadine helped me, but uh, Chandler, Vanessa Chandler, Vanessa Chandler, both of those girls helped me, actually. Vanessa Chandler was the one who had really encouraged me, so she read my, my manuscript, and she said, this is a great book. So, um, so she and Allison uh, Armadine helped me write my first book, and I gave it to the publisher, and this is, this is really, this is another kind of funny story. Bill... Um, of course, wrote the book How Heaven Invades Earth and, um, and had a great relationship with the publisher, Destiny, um, Destiny Publisher. And so they were coming to talk to Bill about writing his second book. And he said, hey, I set up an appointment for you to talk to Don Milam uh, for your book that you're writing. I'm like, oh, that's cool. So I have a one-hour meeting with Don Milam, the publisher, right, the publisher's um, agent. And so I'm sitting down in my office, and I'm so nervous, I can't even think. I have this whole speech I'm going to give him, and I have a copy you know, of my, the first two chapters of my manuscript, which I've had edited now, so it kind of sounds better, and it's, the words are spelt right. And, and so he's sitting in my office for 45 minutes, and I literally cannot think of anything to say, which, if you know me, that's like, it's a reverse miracle. And so, um, so he's like, so, you know, what are you writing? And I'm like, I'm, I'm writing on identity, and uh, my book's on identity, uh, about being a, a, a priesthood, a royal, uh, something about royal, literally, I could not think, I could not talk. Have you ever had a brain fade where you just actually can't get your brain to work, and you walk out of there, and you're like, I cannot believe I'm such an idiot. I could not think of what my book was about. He asked me what my book was about. I, I'm telling you, this is a gotcha. I couldn't think about what my book was about. I spent a year, two years writing it. I couldn't think what my book was about. And I'm like, and I remembered it was something about identity. And I, 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 
He's looking at me like, wow, dude, you are really not the sharpest knife in the drawer, are you? And so, um, so he's like, oh, that's good. And, then, and he says this to me, he said, you know, we get about 10,000 manuscripts a year, and we publish about 150 of them, so it's very difficult to get published. And he's taking me through this, and basically he's telling me, like, you ain't going to get published, dude. You suck. You can't even talk. And I'm thinking that, too. I'm thinking, I can't wait till this meeting's over. That's what I'm thinking. I cannot wait till this meeting's over. So, um, so he's winding down. And, you know, it's, and then, have you ever had a conversation with somebody where they ask for the conversation, but they don't keep the conversation going? So as soon as you stop talking, the conversation stalls? So, you know, I asked for the conversation, but I asked for the meeting, but I can't think. So every time he stops, I'm like, I can't even think of something to say to keep the conversation going. Like, do you have children? Are you a man or a woman? Are you? Um, do you like uh, your job? I, you know, nothing. So, uh, it was it was probably the hardest conversation I, I've ever had that I can think of, uh, at least on that level. And so um, he's kind of stands up to say goodbye like ten minutes early because really there's nothing else to say. And I said, oh, "Can I?" Would it be possible that I could read, read, read you the, 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 like a part of my first chapter? chapter? <laughs> he goes, yeah, I'd love to hear that. I'm sure he's like, yeah, I'd love to hear that. We only have 10 minutes. This can't be too painful. <laughs> and I read him the first three pages of my first chapter. And he turns around and sits back down in his chair... And he looks at me and he goes, we will publish that. He said, that is amazing writing. That's what he said to me. That is amazing writing. We will publish that. And that's how, that's, that was my start. You know, um, when Bill wrote his first book, you know, and it, it was a bestseller, people were like, well, of course, it's Bill Johnson. Huh. When I wrote my first book, people were like, seriously, if he can write a book and get it published, anybody can. So I think I'm a sign and a wonder. <laughs> we have about 40 minutes. I want to talk to you a little bit about different reasons why to write, like reasons to write. So, you, you know, you may have your own, but I, I want to give you some ideas. I, I love what uh, Randolph Emerson said. He said, in, the, in art, the hand can never execute anything higher than the heart can inspire. In art, the hand can never execute anything higher than the heart can inspire. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about writing to uh, encourage people um, and to um, writing to the next generation. Habakkuk, if you have a Bible, you don't need to turn there, I'm going to read it to you anyway, but Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, maybe you've read this already in the conference, I'm sorry I wasn't in the other sessions, but Habakkuk uh, writes this, the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. It hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. And though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. I, I love this, uh, this verse in Habakkuk because he's talking about writing for a generation that is yet to come. He says, I want you to write this down. It's not for now. It's for another time. 
that those who read it may run. How many of you know that our, that our life with God is often depicted as a walk? We say, how's your walk with God? But Habakkuk depicts a people that are walking, and he says that when they read what you wrote, listen, I want you to write today for another generation, for another people, then when they read it, they will run. And, and I, I'd like to, t- to talk to you about writing to inspire people and writing for a generation that you will never see. Years ago, I was laying in the prayer chapel, and I've told this story many times, and it's in one of my books, I don't remember which, but I was laying in the prayer, in, on the floor in the prayer chapel there, oh, this is probably 12 years ago, 14 years ago, and I was, in, and I was taken in a vision 100 years into the future. Now, how do I know it's 100 years? I don't know. All the prophetic people get, you know, probably get this. I don't, I don't even get it myself. But I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in 100 years in the future, and I'm in this huge, uh, I don't know, kind of, it's either a mansion or a castle. It's this beautiful, ornate, huge, huge building. And I'm standing next to this old man. And in, in the vision, I see the old man perfectly, but he cannot see me. And he's got a bunch of children around him, and he's doing what old men do. He's musing, he's, he's talking about the past, and... He's just sharing stories about the past, and, and the children that are around him are, you know, they're, they're elementary age children, and they're, they're half listening. And it's probably like something like Thanksgiving or something like that. There's, there's, a, there's, a whole, there's a whole family of people there, like 60, 70 people. The women are in the, in the front room, I'm sorry, in the kitchen uh, cooking, and the men in the front room, and there's children and teenagers and playing laughing, and, and, um, and I'm standing next to the old man, and, and, and suddenly the old man's voice changes, and his facial expressions change. And he begins to stare out into eternity in the dream. And he begins to say all of this, and when his voice changes, the inflection of his voice changes, Everybody stops talking in the house, and they begin to gather around this old man. And the children are sitting in front of him, around him, and the teenagers and the, and the, and the, the moms and dads are all gathered and sitting around him as he begins to recount the story of their life. And as he does that, as he recounts the story of his of of their life, their history. He says, he takes his hand and he goes, and all of this. And when he says all of this in the vision, I know that he's talking about all of this wealth, all of this royalty, all of this nobility, all of this greatness, all this influence with God. And he says all of this, and right in front of him is a large fireplace, that mantle that goes from the floor all the way up to probably the height of the ceiling, and this beautiful, ornate front room. And he, and he says, all of this began, and when he says began, he points to the mantle over the fireplace, and there's this huge portrait of my wife and I. And he says, all of this began with your great, 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 great grandmother and grandfather. And when he, when he said that, the vision ended. And I came out of the vision 
And I'm laying on the floor of the prayer chapel, of course, in a puddle. And the Lord says to me, I want you to quit your ministry. And I want you to leave a legacy. And he said, I want you to live for a generation you will never see. And so, in my, I, I began to think about living for a generation I would never see. Like, how... How could I leave an inheritance to a generation I would never see? How could I leave an inheritance to uh, uh, my children's 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 children? How could I actually leave? Like, I started thinking practically, how could I actually leave a legacy? How could I talk to a generation I would never see? And I, that, that thought began to just... It began to possess my soul. I began to think about it all the time. Every time I would get in bed at night, I began to think about, I began to envision, if you will, my great-great-great-grandchildren, people who are yet to be born. And I'd be, I'd be thinking about, how could I connect? How could I bridge this gap called eternity, this gap of time and space? And I, I started thinking about that, and I... In the midst of all that, I have a friend who, um, who's a pastor, and him and his wife, I, was very, very, I am very close friends with them, and the wife got very sick, deathly ill. Actually, she ended up with MS, uh, an eight-year journey through MS. And at one point, they had three, uh, two little children, um, one of the children was born miraculously while she had MS in the worst part of her of the season of her MS. And um, I got a call. This is probably uh, two years after I had this vision. I get a phone call from my friend. And he said to me, his name's Willie. And he said, um, Martha's not going to live through the night. Can you, can you please come and pray? And they live on the coast. They were pastoring on the coast. And so I got in my car, Kathy and I got in our car, and we, we drove all uh, three hours there, and we get there, and Martha's on a, a ventilator. She's being kept alive um, by machines. And um, obviously Willie's a mess, and Martha's in a coma. And I get there, and just as the doctor walks into the room, and the doctor says to her, to him, She's not going to live through the night. So, you know, say, basically say your goodbyes. So we're standing in the room, and, you know, of course he's weeping, and this has been going on. This has been going on for, you know, eight years. So, seven years, I guess, at the time. And, and so, um, you know, the children come uh, around the bed, and they're, you know, praying for their mom. Of course, she's c- completely incoherent. And when the children go out, I turned to Willie and I said to him, did Martha write anything to these children? These little children. And he said, no, we didn't want to do anything that would take away from this, the sense of faith. Like, we didn't want to have a plan B. You know what I'm saying? So he said, no, we, she didn't feel like she was supposed to do that because then it would be kind of admitting that she's not going to get well. And I said to him, if, if Martha ever, if Martha gets a miracle and she comes out of this coma, I said, she needs 
to tell these children what she was dreaming about. Because my father drowned when I was three years old. My stepfather, who married my mother when I was five, burned all of my father's stuff. My father was a, uh, a football player in high school I'm in in college, and um, a star. He got um, drafted by the NFL, actually. Didn't, didn't go... Didn't go play football for the NFL, but my father, my my stepfather, was jealous of my dead father, and he burnt everything of my father's, all my tro- all his trophies, everything. I have one helmet that my uncle gave me. And I said to Willie that night in the hospital, I said, I would give a hundred thousand dollars for one page of what my father was thinking about when he saw me, when he held me in his arms. I would pay any amount of money to know what my father was thinking of me when I was a little boy. So I said to him, if anything happens, and Martha comes out of this coma for a day or a month or a week or a year, I said, she has to write to these children, what she's thinking. Well, the crazy thing is, the next morning she came out of the coma, and she lived for another year. And every day, she journaled through, you know, speech those speech uh, programs. She journaled what she was thinking about her children every single day for the next year. I love writing because writing transcends time and space. Writing is one of the ways that we can tell our children's children's children what we were thinking. When I wrote my book, Heavy Rain, in the beginning of the book, I, I wrote, I wish I had the book with me right now, but I wrote a dedication to my great-great-grandchildren, and I said something like this. I said, um... I dedicate this book to my great-great-great-grandchildren. By the time you read this book, I will have been gone and I am watching you from heaven. But I want you to know that I wrote every single word of this book with you in mind. And I wrote this book first to you before I ever wrote it to anyone else. And so I, I feel like that one of the reasons why we write is to leave a revelation, leave a generation that we will never see with the revelation that God gave us. The Bible says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed, they belong to us, get this, and our sons forever. The secret things belong to the Lord. This is interesting that this was written, obviously, thousands of years before the internet, thousands of years before anyone thought about the word intellectual properties. But he said, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. Do you know that the most valuable asset, I'm talking about natural asset right now, as of, as, as, 
as of the last, I think, 10 to 12 years, is intellectual properties. In other words, intellectual properties are more valuable than gold, than silver, than anything that you could purchase, intellectual properties. And he says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed, the intellectual properties that God has given me, they belong to us and our sons forever. And so the things that God's revealed to you, the things that, the, the things that have happened in your life, the things that you write down, the, things that, the, the, the insights that God has given you into life, into your life, into the life of God, those things can be passed from generation to generation, and those things can, you can write into eternity. Um, I love, in uh, 1 Kings, there's this great story, chapter 13, it's 907 B.C., and there's a king, his name is Jeroboam. He's just got anointed by the prophet to be king. God called him to be king. And, and yet, because of free will, the first thing he does is he sets up two golden calves. And an unnamed prophet somehow makes his way into the king's chamber. Now, this is a pretty amazing story because, you know... Kings were assassinated in those days. They were pretty well protected, like our president of the United States. But somehow, an unnamed prophet makes his way into the king's chamber. And he says to King Jeroboam, who has set up these two golden calves and has ordered all of Israel to worship these idols. He says to Jeroboam, God's going to tear down these altars. He's going to destroy these these false prophets. And in the midst of that, the king stretches out his hand and says, arrest that man. And when he does, his hand withers up. How many of you know the story? His hand withers up. And the king looks at the unnamed prophet and he says, can you do anything about this? (laughs) And the unnamed prophet calls out to God and says, heal the king. And God heals, instantly heals his withered hand. And he goes on to say, the prophet goes on to say, there is a king coming, his name is Josiah. And he will turn back Israel to God. He's going to burn down these altars, he's going to destroy your false prophets, and he's going to call Israel back to God. That's 907 BC. I'm sure if the unnamed prophet's anything like me, he's probably thinking the next king is going to tear down these altars, or the king after that. But in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 1, it's 637 B.C. Do you get that? 637. When did he prophesy this? When did the unnamed prophet prophesy this? 907. 637 B.C., some 300 years later. There's a king who's born, a baby who's born, named Josiah. He's eight years old when he becomes king, the Bible says. In fact, verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jediah, the daughter of whoever. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. I can't read either, by the way. That's another problem I have. (laughs) Ellison is one of my editors, and she does a great job. Sometimes she'll say, that's not the right word. She'll put another word in there, and I'm like, I can't use that word. I don't even know how to pronounce that word, much less what it means. Allison, are you in here today? Right there. 
you need a great writer or editor, she's amazing. Um, and he goes on. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked all the ways of his father. He walked in all the ways of his father, David. Let me just stop for a minute. Josiah's father was not David. Josiah's father was wicked. He reigned two years. His grandfather was, uh, was um, uh, Manasseh. It says of Manasseh, you know how if you read the book of Kings, it says this guy was wicked, this guy was wickeder, this guy. It says of Manasseh that he was the wickedest king in all of Israel's history. He reigned for 48 years in Israel. He, 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 he tore down all of, uh, of Israel's uh, sacred places. He, he uh, erected uh, Baals everywhere, statues of Baal, called Israel to worship Baal, and he destroyed the Torah, all of the, what we'd call the Bible. He, destroyed, he burned all the Bibles in all of Israel. He reigned for 58 years. His, his son became king in his place and reigned two more years. And it says, and he walked in all the ways of his father. Josiah became king at eight years old. It doesn't mention who his father is in this passage, but it tells you who his mother was. And it calls David his father. Now, I don't know if you're getting what's happened here, but David has been dead for 400 years. And it still calls David his father. How many of you know when you win a personal victory with God, that God lives in eternity? When you win a personal victory with God, it becomes a corporate covering in which your children's children's children are still being treated, not as they deserve, but as you deserve. And so it says that Josiah's father was David, and he turned aside, he did not turn aside from the left or right, speaking of Josiah. And Hekiah the high priest said to Shephiah the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now you have to understand what's happening here. Um, Josiah at 22, at 22 years old, Josiah must have had some kind of encounter with God. From 8 to 22, we don't know what happens to him. But at 22 years old, he orders the remodeling of the temple, which has not been visited for 50 years. No priests have been there. The Bible has not been read in 50 years. Are you with me? People are talking about America being dead. Israel's worshiping false idols by the decree of the king, of two kings. They have no Bibles anywhere. Josiah is eight years old. He becomes king. 20, at 22, he orders the remodeling of the temple. The priests go in. They're, 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 the, the two priests, the priests and the scribe, are overseeing the remodeling of the temple. They're calling the workmen back. They're taking the offerings that were, that were left there 50, from 50 years ago. They open up the offering box. They take the money out of there, and they're funding the remodeling of the, of the temple. And in the midst of this remodel, they find the book. Are you with me? That hasn't been read for 50 years. And so they, they, they bring the book. They're excited. They bring the book. It says, Hekiah the high priest said to Shephiah the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Probably somebody ditched a Bible, if you will. In the, are you with me? Because the previous king orders all the Bibles to be burned. So he some, probably somebody ditched a Bible in the temple. When they go to remodel it, I'm just summarizing and suggesting that they find it someplace hidden. And so they get the book and they begin to read the book, which hasn't been read for 50 years. And Hekiah the high priest said, Shephiah found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hekiah gave the, the book to Shephiah and, and who read it. And Shephiah the, the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king, said, your servants have emptied out the money box, we've got the workers working. Verse 10, 
Moreover, Shaphiah the scribe told the king, Hekiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphiah read the book in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Now, it goes on to say that he calls Israel back, tears down the altars of Baal after this, and second greatest revival in Israel's history happens through Josiah. It's all history now. What happened? This is what I think happened. I think he begins to read the book. And he gets to the place that was written 300 years before. This says there's coming a king. Are you with me? Whose name is Josiah. And he's going to call Israel back to God. He's going to tear down these altars. He's going to burn your priests on these, on, on these altars. And he's going to call Israel back to God. I believe, this is my own, I believe that the, that the scribe begins to read the book. It hasn't been read in 50 years. And I think he gets to the page where he goes, Oh my Lord, we got a king named Josiah. And 300 years ago, a prophet looked ahead and he saw things, not as they are, but as they should be. And he wrote it in a book. And I think he begins to read the book to Josiah and he goes, your name is in the book. Because I I think that the way that history becomes his story is that people see the future. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4, the Apostle John, Jesus says to the Apostle John, come, come up here. By the way, I believe in a rapture, but I believe there was many raptures in between the big one. The word rapture means come up here. He says, come up here. How many of you know you've been invited to heavenly places in Christ Jesus? You're seated in heavenly places. He said, come up here. So I can show you what things must take place after these things. How many of you know that your heavenly seat gives you eternal perspectives? Are you with me at all? Are you awake? He said, come up here that I may show you what must take place after these things. In our heavenly seat, see, you can live from earth towards heaven. Or you can live from heaven towards earth. When you live from heaven towards earth, you're, instead of living in reaction, how I many you know when you live from earth towards heaven, you're always living in reaction. You're always praying about what already has happened. You're always trying to fix something that's happened. You're writing about what's already happened. But what happens when you start writing from heaven towards earth? Then your prayers become prophetic declarations and your words become worlds. And we begin to call people into their destiny. And I believe that one of the most important reasons to write is that we begin to write not from earth to heaven, but from heaven to earth. And we begin to call things. We begin to look into our children's 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 future. And we begin to call things that are not as though they are. It's like prophetic writing. I like in the the book of Acts chapter 3, verse 24... 
Peter has just, you know, remember Peter and John going to the gate, beautiful, remember this whole story? And Peter says, and the man's lame, and he says, he's begging for money, and Peter says, we don't have money, we're pastors, but what we have, we give to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And he raises him up, and the man walks, leaps, and praises God, and of course, the big crowd gathers, right? And, and Peter begins to preach this message to the crowd, and the last part of this message, right before they are about to receive Jesus, is this. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel. And likewise, this is the last part of his message. I understand we're fast forwarding to the end of the movie. But if you can just capture this one piece of the scene. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward have announced these days. And you are the sons of the prophets of the covenant which God made with our father, saying to Abraham, in your seeds, all the family, in your seed, all the family of the earth shall be blessed. I love this. He says, and from Samuel and the prophets, I'm sorry, and likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward have announced these days that you are the sons of the prophets. I used to think he was talking about the sons of the prophets. Like, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, there was these guys that, that they came down from the mountains and they were called the sons of the prophets. And it, you know, it seemed to start with Eli and, and then Samuel and then Elijah and Elisha. And I used to think he was saying, like, you are the sons of the prophets. Like, you're, you know, you're like the sons of the prophets. And then I realized that that's not the context. The context is that from Samuel and his successors after him, from Samuel on, they began to look into the future. And what did they do? They looked into the future and they began to call into the future, people who are yet to be born. Isaiah said this way, I see a people arising in darkness. Zephaniah said, I see a people, and the least of them is like David, and the greatest is like God. And they began to prophesy about a people who would walk in signs and wonders and miracles. Ezekiel said, I see a people that have a new heart and a new mind. And they began to prophesy about a people who they couldn't even put words to this new creation. I see a people who are not like us, where the Spirit of God comes on us, but they inhabit the house of God. They become the house of God. They walk in purity and power. Signs and wonders come from them. And they begin to prophesy about a people who are yet to be born. Are you with me? And, and, and Peter is about to, re- he's preaching to this people, 3,000 or whatever it was the first time. He's preaching to this people and he, and, he's, and he ends with this. They're about to receive Jesus. We know that because of the rest of the story. And he says, and listen, and Samuel and his successors, they spoke about you, about these days, and you are the sons of the prophets. What's he saying? You are the sons of the prophets. He's saying the prophets spoke into the cosmos. They impregnated the cosmos. How many of you know Jesus said the sower went out to sow seed? And the seed was the word of God. The word seed is the word sperma. We get our word sperm from it. Paul said, I am laboring till Christ is formed in you. What's he doing? He's preaching, and when he's preaching... If you will, the sperm of God is being released from him and they are being impregnated with Christ. The prophets looked ahead, Peter said. From Samuel on, the prophets from Samuel on spoke of these days, he said. What they do? They spoke 
The word of God became like sperm that impregnated the cosmos. And he said, you have become the sons of the prophets. The seed, the word there again, seed, sperma. You are the sperm of Abraham. What they do? They look to the future and they begin to speak about the future. How do we have it? We don't have it in audiobook. See, we didn't get it in an audiobook form. We didn't get a video. We got it written down. Are you, are you with me? We didn't hear Samuel prophesied to us. We didn't hear Ezekiel prophesied to us. We didn't hear Isaiah prophesied to us. We didn't hear Hosea prophesied to us. But we saw it on paper. that Somebody kept that. Someone thousands of years ago said, this is too good. This needs to be reproduced. This is before the printing press. This is before... Most people were literate, to be honest. Most people couldn't even read. And somebody who could read said, this is too good to not keep. <laughs> this feels like God-inspired, God-breathed. Wouldn't it be amazing if you began to live from heaven towards earth? You're, sit- you're seated in heavenly places, and you begin to see your children's children's children. And you begin to speak to them from eternity. Something that will be relevant for their generation. You're not like ancient history. You're like, how many of you know that prophecy is history written in reverse? You're writing things to them that a hundred years from now, you couldn't even have known except God. And you start writing to this generation. And you can just picture your granddaughter, your grandson, picking up your book. Maybe it sold 50 copies. Maybe it sold 5 million. Who cares? Because you didn't write it for them. You wrote it for your grandchildren. Your great, great, great grandchildren. And they pick it up and they begin to read what you wrote. I began to think, this is what my great-great-great-great-grandmother was thinking when she thought of me. And you start to write stuff that's so relevant to a generation that's a hundred years ahead of you. You're like, this must have come from eternity. This must have come from eternity. They couldn't have known this. And what happens? Suddenly those who read it begin to run. Can you imagine that your great-great-great-granddaughter is not doing well with God? Pick up an old book. The pages are yellowed from a hundred years of being on a shelf. And begin to read this book. And in the book, he began to see himself. Began to move from a walk to a run. Maybe from a sit to a walk. Maybe from a bad life to a good one. Not just because the words on a page, but because the anointing that's resting in the pages of the book. And it becomes like Josiah, 
who probably couldn't read. But the priest, actually the scribe, begins to read the book to Josiah. And he's like, your name is in the book. Who knows if Israel would have had a second awakening if the unnamed prophet wouldn't have wrote down the words in a book. Who knows if Israel would have continued to follow idols if somebody didn't write back in 907 B.C. about 120 words in a book. I don't know what it would have been in Hebrew. Who knows? Someone wouldn't have scratched those words on a page if Israel would have returned to God. But we'll never know because somebody had the insight to write words in a book. As Habakkuk said, God said to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, come on, I want to talk to you. I want you to write some words down. But they're not for you. They're not for you. But don't worry about it. Write them down that those who read it might run. Those who read it might run. I want to read you a few paragraphs of a speech written by Dr. Martin Luther King. It's interesting. It's the I have a dream speech. He died right after the speech. You know that. He said, I'm happy to join you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration of freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American, in whose symbolic shadow we stand today, signed the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. This monumentous decree came as a great beacon of light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had yet seared into the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous break, break, uh, daybreak. Sorry, it came as a joyous daybreak to the end of a long night of captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro is still not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the segregation of the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society who finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we have come here today to dramatize a shame of a condition. In a sense, we've come to a nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution of the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall to the heir. Was, was to fall heir. The note of this promise was to all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the un unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of, of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there is insignificant funds in the great vaults of opportunity in this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us, uh, give us uh, upon a demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. But there is something I must say to this people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us, seek to, let us not seek to satisfy our, our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle in, in the high plane of dignity and, and discipline. We must not allow our, create, our creative protest to uh, desecrate into physical violence. Again and again, we must, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with a, with, a, with, a, with, soul, with a force of soul. <laughs> Sorry, I'm looking for this one part. I am mindful that some of you have come here out of great tribulation and trials. Some of you have come fresh from the narrow cells, jail, from narrow jail cells. And some of you have come from areas of your quest, quest for freedom, left battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You've been veterans of, of creative suffering. You continue to work with faith, unearths... Uh, uh, um, sorry, you continue... Continue to work with faith and unearthed suffering is redemptive. You continue to work with faith that unearthed, unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and the ghettos of our northern cities knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends, and even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out its meaning of its decree. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal. I have a dream that one day in the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day in the state of Mississippi, then the state swelling with the heat of injustice, swelling with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that, four, that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they, can, where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racism, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of imposition and nullification, that one day, the, right there in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls as brothers and sisters. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, every valley will be exalted and every hill and mountain will be laid low, and the rough places will be made a plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh 
So y'all see it together. This is our hope. This is our faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out the mountain of despair. I'm sorry. With this faith, we will be able to hew out the mountain of despair into a stone of hope. With this faith, we'll be able to transform a jagging discord of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we'll be able to work together, pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will one day be free. And this will be, and, and this will be the day. This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing this new meaning. My country, tis of thee. It's the land of liberty. It's a land where my fathers died, a land where the pilgrims pride, and every mountainside let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let this freedom ring from the hillsides of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heights of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rocky Mountains of Colorado. And he goes on. What, when, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom to ring, we will let freedom ring from every village, from every hamlet, from every state, from every city. We will be able to speed up that, the day when all of God's children, black and white, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God we are free at last. Isn't it amazing that that man wrote those words many years before black people really felt any freedom? And so, would you stand, please? As they say in Texas, I want to pray for all y'all. I'd like you to put your hand on your heart. Solomon wrote these words in Ecclesiastes. He was actually not doing well in his relationship with God when he wrote Ecclesiastes. So it's a mixture of some God stuff and some of Solomon's terrible philosophy. But one of the good things he wrote in Ecclesiastes is that God has put eternity in our hearts, without which no man can know what God is doing from the beginning to the end. God has put eternity in our hearts, without which no one can know the works of God from the beginning to the end. And I want to pray right now that God would put eternity in your heart, that you would write from eternity, not just for eternity, not just for heaven, but you would write from heaven. That you would write inspiring works like Martin Luther King, like the, like, the, 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 like the people who wrote the book of Kings when they prophesied about things that had yet to come. Like Isaiah and Hosea and, and Habakkuk and these people who saw things not as they are, but as they should be. And they began to write for a generation that they would never see. So I pray right now, God, that you would release eternity in our hearts that we begin to see a generation that we have a responsibility for, but that we won't meet till we get to heaven. And God, that we begin to inspire this generation. We begin to call this generation into their, in their, into their great destiny. That we would prophesy into this generation as our forefathers prophesied us into this season, into the greatest revival in human history that we begin to prophesy to a people that are yet to be born. And we would say to these people, we call you into greatness. 
We call our children into great, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. We call you into your great destiny. That you wouldn't wall in the, in the valley of despair or in the, in, the, in the catacombs of hopelessness. But that you would rise and shine in the midst of a dark people. Wherever, whatever is happening when you're on the earth, that you would be a light in a dark place, that you would be a hope to hopelessness, that you would be the power of God unto salvation, that the power of God unto salvation would work through you, and that you would be a beacon of, of hope and power in a place of great despair, that you would be the people of God, that you would know your God, and that you would do great exploits. Lord, we just release that right now over every single person that's in this room. God, that they would write for this generation, but they would write for a generation that they would never see. We pray for that in Jesus' name.